We're moving into class number four. This first hour again is theology number one. I'm going to pass around the attendance sheet. Please fill in your name and attendance. And let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the freedom to gather, to consider your word and your ways. As always, we ask for your spirit to be our teacher, to guide our conversation, to help us to get along and to help us to grow up into our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for his glory. Amen. All right. Well, I've been threatening you for a while. It's quiz time. This is going to be terribly painful. Even under 18. Um, just take out a piece of uh, paper or use your notes. All you need to do is scribble on the back of them. I'm not going to collect this. This is just for review and kind of fun and to keep you on your toes. Okay? And if you wish to, you may cheat with your neighbor. All right. There will be eight questions. These are the first three. I'll read them to you, and you'll be embarrassed at how simple they are. Okay? First question has two fill in the blanks. Theology is mostly concerned with blank. And your choices are truth content or methodology. And philosophy is mostly concerned with blank. And your choices, again, are truth content or methodology. And obviously, you don't use the same one twice. Okay? What is theology most concerned with? Is it truth content or is it methodology? Write down what you think it is. And then... You don't have to copy the question. Just put two things in order. And what is philosophy more concerned with? Truth content or methodology? Don't make it hard. It's not hard. Is theology about truth or is it about method? Is philosophy about truth or is it about method? That's the question. Okay. All right, second question. Darwinism is an example of the philosophical concept known as the Hegelian dialectic or the leap of faith. And don't be funny here. All right. Number three a philosophical method that elevates human reason to the position of highest authority is rationalism or empiricism. What philosophical method sees the human brain as the highest judge of truth? To put it another way, is it rationalism or is it empiricism? And you can almost guess by the word. Because your mind does what? Your mind reasons. It's the place of rationality. Okay? All right. Can I go to the next page? 
Yeah? Okay, now this may be too small for you. I apologize if it is, but I'll read it to you. This is matching. You got five items and five questions, okay? Your choices are ethnocentrism, source criticism, higher criticism, lower criticism, and redaction criticism. We're really into criticism tonight. Okay. An obstacle to communication caused by a messenger who refuses to adapt to the culture of his audience is called what? One of those five. If you're not sure, hang on, because you'll be able to do some elimination. Okay. Question number five. A kind of criticism that examines the content and teaching of Scripture. I'm going to give you a hint on this one. It's either higher criticism or lower criticism. It's one of those two. Okay? Number six. A kind of criticism that used, that's used in gospel studies that views the gospel writers as creative theologians who weren't really concerned with historical accuracy or truth. Which one is that? By the way, I'm not going to hand, I'm not going to collect these, you know. So just relax. If you don't get it, it's not a big deal. Number seven. A kind of criticism that seeks to discover assumed written documents or sources behind the biblical texts. You should be able to guess that one. All right, number eight. A kind of criticism that examines the manuscripts of biblical texts. Do you remember what manuscripts are? They're handwritten copies of the books of the Bible, the ancient ones kind of criticism that examines the manuscripts in order to determine the reading of the original manuscript. And I'll give you a hint. That is either higher criticism or lower criticism. Anybody want me to read any of them again? Again, if you don't get this, just understand, this is basically a reviewing device. That's really what it's for. Okay. You ready to look at the answers? No? I'll give you 30 seconds more. And for you obsessive compulsive types, if you don't finish it, don't feel badly. Just let it go. Anybody need any question reread? All right. Let's look at the answers. The first question. Let me do something here for a second so I can see what my. Okay. Theology is mostly concerned with truth or method? Truth. Philosophy is mostly concerned with method. Good, methodology. Okay, question two. Darwinism is an example of the Hegelian dialectic. 
Now, to believe it, you have to take a leap of faith, but it is the Hegelian dialectic. Okay. Number three. Um, what was that question? It just went away on me. Okay. What is what what elevates human reason to the highest level of authority? Okay. Number four. What's an obstacle to communication caused by a messenger? And this this is a big thing for missionaries. Okay. A messenger who refuses to adapt to the culture he's trying to reach. What do you call that? Ethnocentrism. Okay. If you ever go to missionary school, they will pound you on the head with this. Okay? You need to learn to adapt to your audience. But we need to learn to do this right in our own neighborhoods. You know, and our, our folks who are working over with the elementary school are doing this all the time. They're learning to adapt because they're dealing with a lot of cultures. Okay, number five. A kind of, of criticism that examines the content and teaching of Scripture. Higher. Yeah, it's higher. But you can think about it this way. Lower criticism is sort of more foundational because it's dealing with the question of what is the correct reading of the biblical text? Okay? If we have 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament and in three of them it says Jesus Christ and in the other 4,997, it says Jesus. Lower criticism is the technique that is used to try to determine which of those reading is, readings is the correct one. So think of that as being foundational. Okay, that's why it's lower. The one that deals with the teaching is higher because it builds on what's lower. At least that's the way I remember it. I just gave away one of the answers. Okay. Number six, what kind of criticism is very common in gospel stu studies and it treats the gospel writers like creative theologians who are making stuff up? Redaction criticism, okay? There, this is very popular today. And if you read modern commentaries on the gospels, you will run into this. Okay, number seven, what kind of criticism seeks to discover the assumed written documents or sources behind the biblical texts. Source criticism. Okay? Source, an example of source criticism, for those of you who have heard of it, is the JEDP theory. The theory that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is a composite document made by joining together four different sources. And I won't go into it now, but the, the, the letters J-E-D-P stand for names of God and a group of people they call the priestly group and another group of people they call the Deuteronym Deuteronomistic group. And if, if any of you are interested in that, we could talk about it after class. Okay, number eight. What kind of criticism examines the manuscripts in order to find the correct reading? That's lower. That's lower. Okay? All right. If you got them all correct, pat yourself on the back. And if you didn't, congratulations, you're normal. All right. All right. What we're going to do now 
is make a transition and start talking about bibliology. We've kind of laid a foundation so that we can, so at least we're all on the same page regarding the possibility of communicating meaningfully about God and now we're going to start talking about the Bible itself. Okay, Bibliology is the study of the Bible as a whole or as an object. It's not so much a study of what it teaches. It's a study of what it is. What is its nature? Where did it come from? Okay? Now, as we move into this, I want to review something we've looked at already from a little different angle. We've talked about the two kinds of revelation, right? What are they? Okay, general and special. What is general revelation? Uh, that's part of general revelation. Romans 1. Romans 1 speaks about general revelation. Vicki said it's natural. Stuff given to everybody. Okay. General revelation is called general because everybody has access to it. And it's basically what you can know about God by looking at the, the world or the back of your eyelids, for that matter. You'd still know something. Okay. Now, there are a number of places in Scripture that talk about general revelation, but the early part of Romans talks about it a lot. And we looked at these passages. I'm not going to go through them right now because I think you're pretty familiar with them. Let me just summarize what they teach. Okay? And this, this is really a review of something we've done already, but you'll see why we're doing it. All people have sufficient knowledge of God's power and eternality, right? Everybody knows that there has to be a creator God. There really is no such thing as an atheist. People call themselves atheists, but they're really deceiving themselves. I'm convinced of the truth of that. Now, all people are under God's wrath for, su for suppressing what they know and for being thankless to him. You know, a person who refuses to recognize God can't possibly thank him for the mercies that he receives every day. Life, breath, air to breathe, etc. Now, Paul says everyone will be judged by the revelation they have, and that's always enough to do what? It's always enough to condemn you. Okay? Regardless of revelation, no one responds to God. Everyone is guilty of sin, no one seeks God, and everyone is condemnable. You know, that long litany of, of uh, quotations from the Old Testament in Romans 3 takes us through this. Okay? Only by the righteousness of Christ can men be saved. Paul says, therefore, by the law will no flesh be saved. You can't earn salvation. Now, he doesn't really state this in these parts of Romans, but we know that this is true. Our only hope of salvation is Christ, and he can only be, made, he can only be known by special revelation. Okay? Therefore, we can see that special revelation is necessary if people are going to be saved. Now, this is all pretty foundational. We've been through this in a way already. 
So general revelation is sufficient to condemn, but not to bring salvation. Special revelation was given by God to address the limits of general revelation. He hasn't left us fumbling around in the dark, has he? He has provided what we need. Now think about this. The ultimate goal of God disclosing himself, okay, making us know who he is, and that is really what special revelation is, is relational. Okay? God wants to do what with us? He wants to communicate so we can have a relationship with him. And that's why a personal revelation is necessary. Now, God gives us a personal revelation using two things. The written word and the living word. Okay? The Bible and Christ. They are necessary to establish a personal relationship between God and men. If God didn't take the initiative to do this, and if he didn't reveal himself personally through the word and through the person of Christ, we wouldn't have any hope. There'd be no way for us to get to know him. Okay? That's really what the Bible is for, in a way. The Bible is God's means of establishing a personal relationship with us because we can't do it in the other direction. Okay. Now, there is a debate regarding the nature of special revelation. And we've seen a little bit of this already. The question is, is special revelation personal or is it propositional? Now, let's stop for a moment. What does propositional mean? What would a propositional revelation be? Well, you're on the right track, Vicki. What is a proposition? It's, what's that? Okay, something proposed, a suggestion. Okay, that yeah, that that is one way of using the term. The way the, the way uh, philosophers use the term, a proposition is a statement. Okay, it's a communication of a thought from one mind to another mind. Okay, but it's done in the form of language. Okay, I cannot communicate a thought from my mind to your mind using any other technique than language. Just can't do it. Right? I can't do it with my eyes. I can't do it with mental telepathy. God has given us only one tool to make one mind meet another mind. And that is language. Okay? So the question that's being asked here is, when God reveals himself, is the contact that we have with him a person-to-person -person contact that's direct or is it a contact that's mediated by a mind sending out language to another mind? Okay? Direct contact is personal. One mind contacting another mind through language is propositional. Okay? 
do any of us in this room really have true personal contact at this moment? We don't, right? It's going through language. Now, surprisingly, there are some people who think that God's special revelation is direct, that it's personal, that you actually have contact with him without propositional language. Okay? Those folks are the neo-Orthodox folks. Remember them? They said that a person reaches a point of what they call despair in life and they make this blind leap of faith into the dark, whatever that is, and in the process of that, they directly encounter God. And once they directly encounter God in some kind of mystical experience that doesn't involve language, then when they read the Bible, it suddenly makes sense to them. But it doesn't make sense because the Bible is a message from God to them. It makes sense because the Bible is a record of other people who made the same blind leap of faith and had a similar direct contact with God. Does that sound wacky to you? It does to me. Okay. Now, the way they're looking at it, they're saying that this personal encounter leads to their saving relationship with God. Now, an orthodox view says that while the goal of special revelation is a personal encounter, and we'll get to that in a minute, the encounter can only occur through the propositional revelation of the written word. You can't get to know God without getting to know this. Because the tool that God uses to establish communication with us is language. Okay? Now, in this view, your saving relationship comes through propositional revelation and that leads ultimately to a personal encounter. Now, I would argue that the personal encounter is mostly still future. Okay? 1 John 3, 2. What does that say? It says, when we see him, we will be like he is, for we shall see him as he is. A day will come when we will actually have that kind of personal encounter with Christ, but I don't think it's really going to happen until we're in his presence in heaven. Until then, what do we have? We've got this. Okay? Now, if you have a mystic bent, I won't, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that there's no sense of personal encounter with God. Okay? There might be. It's never happened to me. The only way I know God is through the Word. There are some folks who will say they've actually had an encounter with God somehow. And if they say that, I'm not going to argue with them. But there is something that I would argue with them, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, and that is that if they've had a personal encounter with God, nothing that they have learned from God could ever contradict or supersede this. Okay? You see where I'm going, right? I don't think, I don't think it's fruitful to argue with folks 
who say that they've had a vision or a mountaintop experience or something. I don't think it's fruitful to argue with them and to say they didn't have that happen. Maybe they did. Okay? Whether they did or not, the important thing is to make sure that they don't think they learned something from God or about God that goes contrary to or beyond what is in Scripture. And as long as they don't think that, then they're probably okay. All right? We'll, we'll address this a little more in a few minutes. Any questions here? What about Paul? Okay. His, his third heaven experience? Second Corinthians, he says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, or the Damascus Road experience? Became, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, what Paul had on the Damascus Road was special revelation. And you know how he got it? Through language. Christ spoke to him. Okay, now, whether the words reached him acoustically or whether God sent the words to him some other way, I don't know. But there were words. Christ spoke to him in language. Now, it's true, what, what he encountered was not written here. It was a direct special revelation from God. And it was real. But it was still propositional. Okay. But your question is very important. Scripture records instances of people receiving direct special revelation from God. Okay. It has happened. In fact, we wouldn't have this if it hadn't happened. Okay. That's why I won't try to argue with people and say you can't have special revelation from God. I will only say that Scripture is complete and there's nothing that we need that God hasn't given us already. So if somebody comes to me and says, you need to have an experience of God. You know, you need to speak in tongues or you need to have a vision or whatever. And people have said this to me. My answer will be, thank you for your concern, but I've got everything I need right here. And scripture says it, contain, it contains everything we need. Um, you said, oh, sorry. Uh, you said, um, in your personal opinion, the personal encounter is mostly future when we uh, go to heaven. Uh-huh. What about the Holy Spirit is here with us today? Sure he is. Sure he is. Well, he may... Let's let's save that question for when we get to pneumatology, okay? That's later on in one of the later theology courses, okay? Very important question. I know I've stirred up the waters here a little bit. I've raised some issues that I'm not going to answer fully right now. I hope you'll be patient with me. Gary? Well, you mentioned Paul's third heaven experience. Of course, the man he was talking about was himself. So Mm -hmm. how do you explain that one? Well, he had some kind of experience of God. I believe that he received propositional content. I believe he also saw things. Okay? Um, God chose to do that with him as he's chosen to do with other prophets. You know, Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. There are other folks who had all kinds of visions. Okay? I'm not saying these things don't happen. All right? What I'm, they have happened, and if they hadn't happened, like I said, we wouldn't have Scripture. What I'm saying is that 
God has worked to provide us with everything we need so that we don't need any special revelation beyond Scripture. Okay? Now, if God chooses to give some, I can't argue with him. Okay? But I can say this. Anything that God may give will never contradict this. Okay? Anything that God may give will never say that Christ isn't enough and you need something else. Because if God did that, he would be contradicting himself. Okay? So, it's, 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 not, it's not that God can't give special revelation. He can. It's that there's no need for it. And if we feel that we need it, we're putting ourselves in dangerous territory because we're going to be looking for something and we may look in the wrong places. You know, I think there are folks who are looking for something like this and they get in trouble. They get in, in contact with other spiritual forces beside God and they think it's God. Okay? Again, we'll come back to this in the future. Um, I did sort of want to stir up the pot here, but I don't want to get too far off topic. Okay. In conclusion, special revelation is ultimately both propositional and personal, but propositional comes first. Okay? All right. Now, I made up a word here. God's special revelation is not only propositional, that is, it comes through language, but it's also condescensional, meaning that God has to reach down to us. Okay? Um, he lowers himself. He uses means that are capable of reaching us in order to reveal himself. Okay? He does this through a number of means. The theologians call them modalities. There's nothing special about that word. Language is a big one. Okay? Culture. Sometimes culture is a tool that he uses to reveal himself. Um, one example would be the culture of the Israelites and how the tabernacle was set up. The New Testament tells us that many of the things in the tabernacle reveal facts about Christ. There's a lot about that in the book of Hebrews. Dreams. Do people in Scripture ever have dreams from God? They do. Will people ever have dreams from God again? Scripture says they will. Okay? In the future. That's an interesting one. We'll talk about that someday. Uh, oops, I went too fast. Visions. Do folks in Scripture have visions? Absolutely. How about the incarnation itself? Now, this is what I would say. This is very important. God's condescension limits the extent of what he reveals. In other words, there are some things that our minds are not prepared to handle. But his condescension does not limit the accuracy of what he reveals. Do you understand the difference here? This is very important. Just because God condescends to reach us, just because God baby talks, because the only thing we understand is baby talk, doesn't mean that what he says in his baby talk isn't true. All right? Very important idea. Um, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, God says, My ways are not your ways. You know, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Okay? But even though that's true, 
the thoughts that God does get to us through language are meaningful and they're accurate. Okay? All right. Now, let's, let's talk about some of these, some of these uh, modes of special revelation. The lot. You know what lots are? Drawing lots. It can be straws. You know, you put a bunch of straws in a bundle and even them up at top and somebody pulls the short straw. That's how they chose who was going to be the apostle who would replace Judas. Okay? There are places in Scripture where lots are used and it seems that at least in some of those cases... God chose, God chose to reveal something to the people who used it. Now, I can't tell you whether Acts 2, whether in Acts 2 they did something that pleased God or not. I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I did. Okay. How about the Urim and the Thummim? Do you remember those? Where were the Urim and the Thummim kept? Okay. There was this vest or breastplate that the high priest would wear. It had a pocket inside, and the Urim and the Thummim were two things that were in there. Okay? Now, there are two theories as to how these things worked. Have you noticed when you've read Scripture that in most of the cases where the Urim and the Thummim are used, the question that is asked is a yes or no question? Okay? Now, Many people think, and I personally, this is my view, that the Urim and the Thummim were like two coins with head and tails. Okay? Now, what's interesting, if you read the account of Scripture, there are times when God will answer by Urim and Thummim, and there are times when he refuses to answer. And you say, well, if you got the Urim and the Thummim, how could you not get an answer? And I think the answer is this. The priest sticks his hand in the pocket, he pulls him out. Two heads, that means yes. Sticks his hand in, pulls him out again for another question. Two tails means no. For another question, he sticks it in, pulls it out. One head, one tail. That means I won't tell you. Okay? This is one of the theories, and I think it makes sense. Okay? King Saul was very frustrated because he couldn't get an answer from God about whether to go up against the Philistines. Remember? It says he tried Urim and Thummim. He sought visions. He consulted with the prophets and he couldn't get an answer from God. But he had the high priest and they had the Urim and the Thummim. How could it be that God would refuse to give an answer? It had to be something like that. Okay? There's another theory that the Urim and the Thummim were some kind of stones that would glow in a certain way when a particular answer was being given by God. That's a new theory. It's based on the meaning of the words Urim and Thummim, and nobody really knows what they mean. But I think it's the head-tail thing. Okay? Whatever it was, God did use this at times to give propositional content answers to questions, right? Okay. Um, dreams. Joseph had dreams, right? Daniel had dreams tricky thing about dreams is that if you don't have someone to help you interpret them, you don't necessarily know what they mean. You know, Joseph has this dream of uh, stalks of wheat bowing down to him, and you say, well, what does that mean? Well, eventually we know what that means. Through what? Through? Through progressive revelation. Excellent. 
through the story that comes along later, right? And that that story demonstrates the meaning of the dream. Okay? When Daniel has visions which could also which are also like dreams, an angelic interpreter comes along and tells him what they mean. When Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, how does he find out what it means? How does Daniel find out what it means? God tells him. Okay? Now that's that's an interesting thing. Dreams and visions I think are, are, are very are very tricky. Okay? The only way to be sure what they mean is to be told what they mean. And I think that's what happens in Scripture generally. Uh, Abraham falls into a deep sleep in Genesis 15:12, and yet when he is asleep, he sees things. You remember that? He sees this smoking pot and burning torch pass between the halves of the animals. Okay? I think that God was revealing something to him because after he sees that, God says, I have given you this land. Okay? Now again, God didn't just let him see that thing. God gave him an interpretation of the meaning of what he saw, and the interpretation came in the form of what? Language. Okay? Again, language is the only way to reliably communicate a thought from one person to another. And one of the reasons we live in such a mixed-up culture is because there are all kinds of images being thrown at us, and images are often very ambiguous. In fact, often they're designed to be ambiguous. Language is much more... It's not even fair to say that it's much more capable of communicating thought. It's the only thing that's capable of communicating thought. Images without words cannot communicate thoughts. You know? Have we talked about this before? This is one of my pet peeves. Um, Did I give you this line? A picture is worth a thousand words, but it's not worth a single sentence. Did I say that? Okay, well, think about this. Um, I was looking in a magazine a few weeks ago. Someone had brought out some color pictures that were taken during the Korean War that had been stored away in an archive and no one had ever had never been published. Okay, and in that picture, there's a bunch of farmers standing next to a field that's obviously been bombed. Okay, but there's something green growing in the field. Now, without any explanation, you could look at that picture and you could come to a number of different conclusions. You could be looking at this and saying, this is horrible. We had this wonderful field and the bombs ruined it. It could mean something entirely different. It could mean they bombed the field, but we're farmers and we're starting to grow something again. It could be a negative thing or it could be very positive. Okay? There could be a big story behind it and you'll never know what it is <laughs> until somebody does what? What's that? Read the caption until somebody gives you a caption, until somebody gives you propositional communication in the form of language to explain the significance of what you're seeing. Okay? Images do not convey meaning. They may sometimes com- convey impressions or emotions 
but they don't convey meaning. They cannot convey a complete thought. All right? And, that, and that's why God used words. There yes. used to be something they call subliminal. Yeah. Uh, where they might, in movie theaters, mm-hmm. something up they'd flash something really quick. Yeah. That you want a bottle of Coke to make you thirsty or something. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's interesting. Um, the, the only reason that worked is because they knew you were in a context where you were probably thirsty. So that they put something up there that would make you want it. Okay, let's go on. Angels. God used angels to uh, be his agents of special revelation. Okay, In the book of Daniel, they often give him interpretations. Angels show up right before Jesus is born and right after he's born. Okay, and they say what's going to happen. You know, without those angels coming along and telling Mary, you're going to turn up pregnant without having sex with anybody, Mary could have been really confused. Okay? But the angel came along and he told her what the meaning of this event was going to be in advance. Okay, now this is an interesting one. In a sense, in a sense, events, the things that happen in history, in a sense, they are a mode of revelation, but they always require divine interpretation in order to be meaningful. Okay? Scripture contains a record of many events, but it also contains a commentary on those events to tell you their significance. Now, the New Testament, most of the New Testament, is a commentary on the record of the Gospels to tell you what this was all about. Why did this guy, Jesus, come? What did he accomplish? What's he going to come back and do? Okay? The Exodus. It's an event, but without Scripture telling you what it means, you get all kinds of wacky ideas. Okay? So be careful with this one. I've included it because God uses events as, as a means of commentary, as a means of revealing things, but only with explanation. Okay, theophanies. What's a theophany? Anybody know? It's an appearance of God in some kind of a form. Okay, there are theophanies in Scripture. And when those happen, the theophany speaks. Right? When, um, uh, oh, was it, oh, excuse me, um, Samson's parents, okay? Samson's parents see what most theologians would say is a theophany, okay? They have a visitation from God in the form of a being who goes up in the fire, okay? He speaks to them, okay? There, there are many theophanies in Scripture, Yeah, in the fiery furnace, one who looks like a son of the gods. Yes. How do we distinguish that from a Christophany? Well, okay, a Christophany is a theophany which we conclude is a revelation of Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Okay? Many theologians would say that all of the theophanies in Scripture, at least the ones involving someone in a in a in a man-like form are Christophanies. Not everybody would agree with that. Okay, But a Christophany is a 
theophany that involves the second person of the Trinity. Okay? All right. The incarnation is obviously a mode of revelation. And what did Jesus do when he was here? A whole lot. What did he do? He spoke, right? He's called the living word. Okay. And the Bible itself is obviously a very important mode of revelation. Okay. I'm going to skip this slide and go to this one. All right. Because I want to get to this. Okay. Two very important questions regarding the biblical modes of revelation. Okay? Since the modes of revelation used by God are not unique, they do appear in other religions, don't they? How do we know that the revelations recorded in the Bible are valid since we are inclined to conclude that the revelations recorded in other religions are not valid? Okay? Secondly, since some people claim to receive new revelations by those same modes that we've just talked about, are these new revelations really from God? Okay? Now we're getting into some very controversial stuff. Let's keep our heads here, okay? All right. Let's look at these one at a time very quickly. Since the modes of revelation used by God are not unique, how do we know that the revelations recorded in the Bible are valid? Okay. Well, we can approach this by making several observations. First one is that God used these modes because they can reach people. Okay? He was doing what? He was <coughs> stepping down, condescending to our level to reach us. Okay? Secondly, many of these sort of unusual modes of communication, visions, dreams, Urim and Thummim, etc., were given very early in human experience. And it's reasonable, even likely, that Satan is going to want to counterfeit them. Okay? Because what does Satan want to do? He wants to deceive us. Okay? All right, third. This is very important. God has provided safeguards to help us know that these revelations recorded in the Bible are valid. Okay? These safeguards include his supervision of the process by which we receive his special revelation. Okay? That includes inspiration. Okay, the process of inspiration that's, that Scripture talks about and canonization. Now, we haven't talked about that, but canonization was the process by which the church came to recognize which sacred writings really were the Word of God and which weren't. Okay? We'll get to that soon, not tonight. Okay? Secondly, we have supernatural validation of the human agents of revelation and what they wrote down. Okay? Now, the, probably the two most important validations are the miracles that they performed and the prophecies that they made that have already been fulfilled. Okay? By doing that for us, God gave us a reason to trust this. Okay? 
Now, it's interesting. If you think about it, the folks who lived when the Bible was being written seem to have a lot more experience of visions and theophanies and dreams and Urim and Thummim and all those things. People say, oh, I wish I lived back in those days when God was speaking so often. Well, they also lived in a time when your Bible was only that thick because a lot of the stuff hadn't been written yet. Now, as time goes on, more and more of the Bible is written and in the process of it being written, God is giving prophecy. And then as time goes on, some of those prophecies begin to be fulfilled. As the Bible gets thicker and thicker and there's more and more fulfilled prophecy, that means that the folks who live at this time can look back at the fulfilled prophecy and that's how they know that what's written down is reliable. So as God has taken people through history, it's kind of like in the time when, the, when, when you didn't have a lot of scripture, he was doing a lot of direct speaking. In the time when you get down here, when you have scripture in, in its complete form, God isn't doing much direct speaking, if any. But we have the written scripture and the proof of the miracles and fulfilled prophecies to give us confidence that what is written in here is all that we need to know. And that's why we're not running around looking for more revelation, right? We don't need to. Does that make sense to you? Gary? David, and I, and I really hadn't read the apocryphal books. I mm. looked at them a little bit. Sure. But what, there are people out there that are trying to canonize the books. Mm-hmm. Can, can you rule those out? Obviously, you can. Well, okay. Okay, that, that's a great question. Um, there are other sacred writings, okay? Some written by the Jews, some written by other people, uh, that claim to be revelations from God. If you examine them, it's really pretty clear that they're not of the same quality as this. Okay, first of all, they often contain historical inaccuracies. Many of them are forgeries, claiming to be written by somebody who was dead hundreds of years before the book was written. Um, many of them contain ideas that simply are not compatible with Scripture, okay? And an awful lot of them pretend to be prophecies when in fact they were written after the events that they pretend to predict, okay? Now, we know that Scripture contains predictions of events that occurred after it was written because we can trace the history of Scripture back before the time of Christ, and we've got lots of prophecies of the coming of Christ that are highly specific, and we know that they're supernatural, because we can prove that those books were written before he came. That's not true of this other stuff that's not part of Scripture. Okay? All right. The last one. The superstructure of the product. I'm trying to make super, super, super here to make it easy to remember. If you don't like that, blame it on me. Um, this is the requirement of consistency and continuity with all previous revelation. Now, this is a really big one. I'm going to run over our time and take a little time from hermeneutics because we need to talk about this, okay? This, this is something that I think the church has not paid a lot of attention to and we really need to. 
Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder of which he spoke to you comes to pass. Okay, now get this. He makes a prophecy and it comes true. Saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now just stop right there. Whoops, I hit the wrong button. Fulfilled prophecy does not validate a messenger. It's not enough. Okay? You need more. It's a good start, okay? But it's not enough. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Just because someone comes along and does a miracle, you know, heals your broken ankle or, you know, grows a new leg on your dog with three legs. We have a dog with three legs that lives across the street from us. Okay? Just because he does that does not mean he came from God. Okay? It's a good start. It's encouraging, but it's not necessarily true. What this is saying, okay, if a person does that, but he calls you to go after other gods that you haven't known, don't do it. Now, what can you do to generalize this? Basically, what this says is if someone comes along and claims that he's got new special revelation, but that revelation is not consistent with all that has been revealed beforehand, then it isn't from God. Okay? It's the test of consistency. Right? This is why we know that the Mormon religion is a lie. Because it's not consistent with Scripture. Okay? Alright. Now, the second one. If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Now, notice this. This doesn't say, how shall we know the word that the Lord has spoken. It says, how shall we know, know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. Now, to speak in the name of the Lord simply means to say, I am a messenger from God. Okay? If the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hasn't spoken. If a prophet comes along and says, watch this miracle, and I'm a messenger from God. If his miracle doesn't work, you know he's not from God. Okay? But the flip side is not true, necessarily. Just because his miracle works doesn't mean he is from God. You get it? This is very, very important, and people are often very sloppy on this. Okay? Successful miracles alone do not validate a message or a messenger. You need more. You need consistency. Okay? And failed miracles do invalidate a message or a messenger. Now, you look at this thing and you say, what's so important about this? You know, why do I have to know when somebody isn't a prophet of God? Well, tell the truth, this one in many ways is more useful. Isn't it? Okay? 
I don't want to be bothered by people who come along and say, I've got a new message for you from God. If they can't do a miracle, I can very happily ignore them, can't I? And I just don't have to worry about it. Okay? There's more danger from people who claim to have new revelation than there could possibly be from us missing something that God supposedly hadn't given us already. Okay? In reality, is there anything we need that God hasn't given us in terms of revelation? There isn't. Okay? Am I beating a dead horse here? Okay. A miracle doesn't necessarily come with a messenger, though, does it? Well, okay. Yeah, not, not all messengers will claim to bring miracles. I'm just saying, say you pray for something and a miracle happens. That's not, nobody came and... Yeah. Yeah. Well, this 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 is a test of someone who claims to be a messenger from God. Yes, it's not true that all miracles are associated with new revelation. But if someone comes along and he says, "I've got new revelation," and he says, "Watch this miracle," and it doesn't work, okay, you can just write him off and laugh at him. Okay. Yeah. All right. Second question. Since some people charismatic, third wave, Pentecostals, etc., claim to receive new revelations by the same modes as we know about from Scripture. Okay? Are these new revelations from God? Okay? Let me suggest three things to think about. Authority. Those who claim to receive revelations rarely claim that those revelations are on the same level as Scripture. I'm glad they don't claim that. But they generally don't claim that. Now, does the idea of a non-authoritative revelation from God make any sense? It doesn't, does it? God is authoritative. Everything he says that he really says is true. And it bears his authority. They're actually nuts, I will call them that, out there who claim that they receive non-authoritative revelations from God or even non-true revelations from God. What is that? It's nonsense, right? Okay. Quality. These new revelations often concern things like your health, your finances, politics. Sometimes they go against scripture or sometimes they merely repeat biblical content. These things are either inferior to Scripture, they're wrong, or they're unnecessary. Can divine revelation be wrong or unnecessary? I suppose it could be unnecessary, but if it's unnecessary, guess what? It's unnecessary. In other words, you don't need it. Okay? So, again, most of the stuff that these people are coming up with doesn't pass the quality test. I have a question on that. Yes. But wouldn't, uh, couldn't God use a revelation like that where he is repeating something that is biblical already in the Bible merely to get the attention of a person or a group of people to turn them back into the Bible? Okay. I think he could. And in fact, it's my opinion that he will during the future tribulation period after the church is taken off of the earth 
there's going to be a period of time when there are no believers on the earth, but we know that folks are going to start getting saved. They will presumably do that through Scripture, but God, it's, it also says that God's going to be giving dreams and visions. And he may use those to get people's attention to do exactly what you're saying, to remind them of what has already been revealed, but what they need to pay attention to. It could happen now, okay? And I'm not saying that it can't, but I am saying that it's not necessary, okay? And, you know, if we're, if we're actively seeking to know God and his word, it's probably not going to be necessary, okay? Again, my, my goal here is not, to, is not to say categorically that this can't happen. My goal is to give us some means of which, by which to evaluate these supposed revelations and also to remind ourselves that even if such a thing should happen, we can live without it, can't we? Because we've got everything we need. Okay? Now, the last one, results. Results are not an absolute test of truth. I think we can observe, however, that those who claim to receive new revelations often focus on themselves, and they often demonstrate a lack of spiritual maturity. You know, you've seen all the, you've, you've all seen these guys on TV, right? They claim they're getting new revelations, and you know, six years later they're caught in bed with you know their best friend's wife or something, or they're caught evading taxes or whatever, and you know, they just discredit themselves. Okay? Now, are these the proper results of contact with God? No. Does that necessarily invalidate them? No, it doesn't. But it brings it into question, doesn't it? Okay? And see, that's as far as I want to go with this question. I am not going to ever say that God can't give additional special revelation. All I'm going to say is that we have everything we need and that whatever he might give in the future has to be consistent with this. And it's not because I made that up. It's because God said that, right? And he never contradicts himself. All right? Okay. I will give homework.